Well, in the best of times, we can have anxiety come to roost, can't we? I mean, uh, we are concerned about our children, our grandchildren, and their futures and their health. We're concerned about our jobs or our aging parents or relationships. We have concerns about our own health and our own financial status in the future. And then you throw into all of that a global pandemic with its quarantines and lockdowns and and stopping and starting and stopping again in virtual school and the unrest in the world and what we've seen this past spring and summer in our own country as far as calling evil good and good evil and anarchy and then the fiasco even this past week in Washington. And it's like we're waiting, we're waiting for things to calm down, for this to blow over, for things to go back to normal, but it seems as if things keep getting worse and worse, and the the downward spiral trajectory just keeps gaining speed. And we're going, my goodness, what are we supposed to do as believers? Just hurry up and survive this, I guess, but God, what are we supposed to do with this? You know, Joshua chapter 5, fantastic chapter the Israelites have been wandering around in Israel for, or in the desert for 40 years. And uh, Moses had just died, and Joshua was put in charge. The poor man had never been in charge of anything before. And now he's in charge of Israel, all the men and women and children and, and nursing moms and elderly people. And the task he's been given is take Canaan. And so he crosses the Jordan And they're going to take Canaan, but Canaan's not interested in being taken, right? And so he sends out his reconnaissance mission. They come back and they say, the very first thing we're going to have to do is take on the biggest, the meanest, the nastiest bully in Canaan, Jericho. And we could go through all the specifics with that one, but humanly speaking, Israel wouldn't have stood a chance at Jericho, Uh, Joshua was probably thinking, I'm leading my people into a sure massacre here. And so maybe he's, he's off wondering, praying, thinking. He's by himself one night, kind of just going for a walk, maybe questioning, what in the world have I got myself into or what has God got me into? And lo and behold, he comes across God, theophany and And he's got to be saying, you know, God, I'm so glad to see you because Jericho is just down the road. And, Lord, we're going to get clobbered at Jericho. So I tell you, we need a strategy, Lord. We need some more weapons or we we need something. And God says, Joshua, I want you to take off your shoes. It's time to worship. And uh, we, we might think, well, uh, 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 Lord, we, we can worship later on. You know, we, we really don't need a church service right now. What we need right now is we need a plan. We, we, we need warriors here. We, we need some way to be able to take this on. And, and God says, Joshua, do you think that Jericho is beyond me and all the other Jerichos you're going to be experiencing here? Do you think those are beyond me? My only question, if we could say God has a question, would be whether or not my people worship me. And so Joshua, facing all the uncertainty and all the obstacles and all the threats and all the dangers, worships the Lord. You know, God's strategy for dealing with a world out of control back then is the same as his strategy for dealing with a world out of control today, and that's that his people worship. But that begs some question, doesn't it? I mean, what does acceptable worship look like or sound like or feel like? 
You know, 2 Samuel chapter 6, I think God gives us the answer to those questions that if we can understand, we can embrace, can have a major, make a major difference in our life. And so if you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel 6, or turn on your, your uh, device, 2 Samuel 6, and this is the event that, that is uh, leading our discussion this morning. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And you might be saying, well, I know why Joshua went and got 30,000 people, because that ark is a big thing. I mean, that's huge. It's got all these animals in it. It just takes a lot of people to carry that. No, wrong ark. All ark means is box. And Noah had a big box, absolutely, and it was filled with animals. This box is a little bit different. This is the Ark of the Covenant. And so let me go over some things that you all already know, some, some history of this Ark, because this Ark is the front and center. It is the main character in our story today. Uh, when, when Israel got, came out of Egypt, they had no clue how to worship God. Only way they knew how to worship is the way the Egyptians did it. And God said, we're not going there. And so he took them to Mount Sinai. And I'm going to dump a lot of information in a hurry on y'all. So just kind of stick with me on, on this or you're going to miss eons of time, right? And so, so he gives them some very sophisticated directions on how to worship him. And it includes a tabernacle. Now, a tabernacle, big old tent. Now, when the tabernacle actually got foundations, we would call that the temple. Well, the same thing. And there are two rooms in the tabernacle, only two rooms. First room is called the holy place. There are three pieces of furniture in the holy place. Each of the pieces of furniture very specific to worshiping God. Priests would come in and out of the holy place all day um, before, beseeching, before um, God beseeching him on behalf of Israel. But then there's that back room called the most holy place. One piece of furniture in there, and that's the Ark of the Covenant. And nobody went in there. Uh, there was a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. High priests would go in there once a year, but he'd go in with fear and trepidation because you don't just walk into the presence of, of God. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, four feet by two feet by two feet. You know, I, I picture this thing looking like uh, one of those uh, cedar chests that folk have mushed up against the, the back of the bed. You know, you put blankets in it and that sort of thing. A little more ornate, covered with gold. This was pre-hinges, and so they, the, the top, they had to mold it out of gold and set it right on top. Had a couple of angels on it. Very, very beautiful, elaborate sort of deal. And, and the significance behind this ark was, was not the gold. It wasn't the fancy top. The, the significance is what it held. It's the ark of the covenant. It's like a frame is nice, but the Picasso or the Renoir or the Van Gogh in the frame is what really makes that frame significant. Inside the ark, God had made a, a covenant. And if you think about this, almighty, eternal, infinite God had chosen a group of people and said, I'm going to be your, your, your God, and you're going to be my people. And he, he drew that up. That's a pretty important piece of, of paper at this point, stone. And, and it was basically like the marriage license between the nation of Israel and God. This was proof that they belonged to God and he to them. And so they put this in this box, and this was to be honored substantially. In Exodus 22, 
God says this. He says, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment of the people of Israel. And let me just mention, first part of that verse, it says this. He says, there, he's talking about the Ark of the Covenant, I will meet with you. From above the mercy seat, from above, the, between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the testimony. In other words, God's not in the box, right? That's Indiana Jones theology. God's not in the box. God, God comes to visit his people above the box. And, and, and so the, this, this, this art came to stand for the very presence of God, the, the, the imminence of God. He's with his people. But it also, don't, don't miss this, this is real important. It's also a symbol of the transcendence of God. Because you couldn't really get in the back room with the ark. As great as the Old Testament system was and the sacrifices, you still couldn't get right in the same room with God. He was too holy. He was too other. He was too perfect and us too unperfect to make that to make that work. And therefore, with this ark, whenever you transported it, whenever the tabernacle shut down, it had to move someplace else and you had to move the ark. The way you did it is it had little ringlets on the bottom, poles went through the ringlets and the priests would pick it up and they would carry this thing. Scripture makes it real clear and this is what the text says. It says, but they must not touch the holy things, speaking of the furniture, lest they die. The holy things, holy furniture, you couldn't touch it. It's like touching God himself. You couldn't, couldn't do that lest you die. Now, a little more history on this. It was constructed underneath Moses' watch in about 1450 B.C. In 1375, Israel had taken Canaan, and so they'd set up a headquarters in a town called Shiloh. Tabernacle was set up with the holy place and the most holy place and the ark in the, the most holy place. In 1075, 300 years later, a guy by the name of Eli is in charge. He's getting old. His sons are going to, they're, they're, they're priests as well, but they're not walking in the ways of, of Eli. There's a battle that's going on between Israel and the Philistines. And so Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, say, we're going to win this battle. And the only way we're going to do it is if we bring God with us. And so they take up the box the Ark of the Covenant on poles, they carry it into battle, pretty sure, using God as basically a lucky rabbit's foot, that they're going to win the battle. They lose, and the Philistines take the Ark, and the Philistines love this. They're saying, ha, ha, Israel's God, the one that decimated Egypt, we got, yeah, we got him. And so what they do is they put him, the Ark, in, in one of their temples in the city of Gath. Suddenly, a plague breaks out on everybody in Gath. And the Gathites are saying, we're tired of this ark. Let's move it on. And so they send it on to another Philistine city, Ekron. And they say, y'all watch this thing for a while. And the, the Ekronites, suddenly plague hits them. And they're going, my goodness, we don't want. So they keep moving this ark around until all of, of the Philistine cities have been infected. And there is this incredible plague breaking out all throughout Philistine land. And they say, we're tired of this ark. And so they put it on a cart, hook up a couple of oxen, slap them, point them towards Israel. And they say, go, get out of here. And so the oxen take off. Border town between Israeli land and Philistine land is a town called Beth Shemesh. So the folk are out in Beth Shemesh. They're working their fields one day. And suddenly this cart comes rolling in. No one around it. But lo and behold, it's carrying the ark. And the folk of Beth Shemesh go, ha, ha, ha. 
Do you believe that the ark is here? This is incredible. And so they all get around it, and they're all thinking this is fantastic. Never seen the ark before. You know, they always keep in that back room in Shiloh. But here it is. My goodness. Someone says, you know what? I, I hear that the Ten Commandments, the original copy, the ones that God made, they're in this box right now. Someone else says, well, I, I wonder if they're still there. Maybe the Philistines took it out. Then someone has a great idea. I'll tell you what. We should pop the top here and look inside. And so they do. And then in 1 Samuel 6, you don't have to turn back. We should have it. It says, God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck about 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jarim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come now and take it to you. They said, we got to get rid of this thing. Who can we give it to? I don't, you, don't you love this? Because everyone wants God, right? And, and Until they get him. Then they're trying to get rid of him. We can't handle this. Guy's radioactive. And so they call up the folk in Curious Jareem. And they say, you all come get it. Listen, hey, we got a deal for you. Why don't you come pick up the ark and take care of it for a while? And so chapter 7, verse 1. The men of Curious Jareem came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, in case you wondered where Abinadab lived. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And the ark of God hangs out in Abinadab's garage for 20 years. Now, I'll think about this for a moment. The ark, it's, it's a sign of God's presence. It's where God says, I will meet with you. And they have it stuck and a guy's garage. And it stays there 20 years, and then Saul becomes king. And you would think that Saul would say, I'm going to go get that ark. That's a picture of God. That's, that, that, that contains our marriage license to him. That's, that's an incredible, that's the only place God's going to meet us. I'm going to go get that ark. But Saul never thinks about it. It's not on his radar, and that's an incredible indictment against King Saul because either A, He's just ignorant of it. Or B, he just really doesn't care about it. Deuteronomy 17 says that when you get a king, the first thing he needs to do is be reading the law, first five books of the Old Testament, daily. And it doesn't take much of a reading to recognize that the ark is pretty important, which lets us know Saul probably neglected that. And so for another 40 years... The ark is hanging out in a Benadab's garage, Benadab up on the hill with this boy watching, watching over it. But the ark was never very far from, from David's heart. He'd never seen worship, including the ark, before. But as soon as he becomes king, as soon as he becomes king, first thing he does, he just says, let's go get the ark. And so he organizes this, this parade, worship parade, we call it. First, Corinthians thir- First Chronicles 13, just listen to this. It says, David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and the Levites and the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. 
Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. And all the assembly agreed to do so, for this thing was right in the eyes of the people. And so all of Israel comes to, to, for this worship parade. I mean, folk from as far away as Naphtali and Asher, they all come. And Psalm 68 gives us a picture of this parade. The, the tribes are all there with their, with their banners. The marching band is there. And so you've got it in, in 2 Samuel 6. Says verse 3, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Oh, I don't know about the cart part, but they did. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the, maybe the Philistines, see, had put it on a bad cart and they put it on a new one, so they were feeling good about it. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark, and David. And all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. This was a huge parade. I mean, you, you see this parade. They are rejoicing. The band is playing. The ticker tape is falling. You know, the people are dancing. Happy days are here again. They're just loving this. They are rejoicing. They're celebrating. Do you think they felt God that day? I think so. Do you think there was a spiritual high? Yes, God is coming back to Israel. He's going to be our God. I think that they were probably top of the world. That's what makes this next verse so, so challenging, so confusing. Verse 6, it says, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. All the hoopla, all the hip hip hoorays, all the, the joy, and suddenly everything dies down. <sighs> Deafening silence, and maybe screams. And you would say, God, what are you doing? God, God, what's going on? It's not like Uzzah was living some terrible, sinful second life going. I mean, the guy was caring for you. You know, Uzzah's father was Abinadab. In other words, this, this, this ark was hanging out in Uzzah's garage for the last six years. Uzzah could not put his bike in the garage because the ark was in there. There's time Uzzah probably wanted to go out with his friends, but it was his time to babysit the ark. Of all the people there that day, Uzzah knew of the ark, loved the ark more than anybody. Uzzah was a friend of David's. Uzzah was a husband and a father. Now there'd be children who'd be orphaned because of what? Because he did what you and I would have done if we're walking behind it and the cart stumbled, the things start sliding off and we're seeing the ark of the covenant's gonna hit the mud and maybe be busted up. We're gonna put out our hand to stop it. That's all Uzzah did. And if you're angry or upset and you can't confuse by God what he did there, you're not in bad company because in verse 8, and David was angry because of the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Perez, outbreak against Uzzah. David says, God, you know what? I'm going to name this place. I'm going to name this place how you treat people who love you. God outbreaks against Uzzah. That's what it's going to always be known as. David is angry, and David was afraid 
of the Lord that day. God is so unpredictable. How can you count on a God like this? He might just be upset. You're doing everything. You're trying to live your life right, but you mess up one time, not even knowing that you're messing up, and what happens? That's the way God deals with it. Forget it. I'm done. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. They get off the very next exit, find the very first guy's garage, back in someone's garage, Obed-Edom. David goes back to Jerusalem, says, forget it. I'm distancing myself from God. You know folk like this. They tried. They seemingly were living, or they know somebody who was, and yet God didn't protect God didn't come through. God, his anger broke out against them. And it's like for crying out loud, I'm done with this. David was there. That's where David was at. Now, here's the, here's the, 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 the lesson of Uzzah. That worship without obedience is dangerous. Worship without obedience is dangerous. Now, follow me with this. Uzzah did not die because the ark was carried on a cart instead of by poles, right? Uzzah died because he reached up and touched the ark. And it was touched the ark because it was carried on a cart, not on poles. Let me say that one more time. Uzzah did not die because the ark was not uh, carried on poles, but on a cart. Instead, he died because he touched the ark and he touched it because it was not carried on poles, but on a cart. If the ark would have been carried appropriately, according to God's word, Uzzah would not have prematurely died. Sometimes we look at the word of God and we say all of the commands and the rules that he has, you know what, they're kind of antiquated. They're just optional. You really don't have to do it. You know, I'm in. I don't need to worry about it. And so, so we're done with it. I can imagine that this is what they thought. David knew about these rules. David knew the word of God very well. He knew everything about the ark. But carrying the ark on sticks, for crying out loud, is bad on people's backs. It hurts their shoulders. They're going to go see a chiropractor. You know, we, we, we have got the wheel now, for crying out loud. Let's put it on a nice cart. And that will be a lot easier, and that will be more comfortable, and it will be quicker. We can make better time, and so let's do it this way. We can improve on God's, God's word. You know, the irony here, there's incredible irony here if you think about this, because what's in the box? Ten commandments, the word of God, and by their bringing it back to an extent, what they're saying is we're going to honor the word of God. We're, go we're going to fulfill and live for the word of God. And while they're saying this, they're doing just the opposite. They're not living by the word of God. You know, there are us's here today. There are always us's every time God's people gather to worship. Us's who might feel God feelings, might sing God's songs and experience God-sized adrenaline, right? But they have no intention of living their life based on God's word. Oh, yeah, I, I know what God says about morality. <laughs> you know what? That's, that's antiquated. I, I got freedom in Christ. I don't need to go down that road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, as far as my entertainment, I don't think so. God it, it, it involved in my money? No, we're not going there. You know, God it, involved in my dying to self and my caring for others and my living for his kingdom? Well, <laughs> 
let's not go crazy here. Yeah, I just like being involved with the celebration and the excitement and the fun and the lights and the music and, and the vision. That's where I go. In doing so, you just need to know all of those things can never trump a life of, of o- obedience. God is not interested in a worship parade unless it's attended by people who are not perfect people, but who are concerned and committed to living out his word. When we seek to worship with, without a commitment to obedience, God's word, that's damning to ourselves. It would have been better if we hadn't been at the worship parade than if we decide to go there. And so, so David goes home. And for three months, he's, I think, looking at the word, I think praying, I think repenting, because he knew what he should have done. And he, he looks at it and he says, you know what? We did it all wrong. My bad, I did it all wrong. So he organizes Worship Parade 2.0. And so he gets this all together. And, and verse, where we got? Oh, 12. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. Now, now I want you to notice the differences between worship parade 2.0 and worship parade 1.0. And when they had gone six steps, so they're carrying it this time, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the horn. See some of the differences? They got the carrying it this time, which is right. They had sacrifices going on, which weren't required. That was, that was, that was David's own plan. But not a bad plan. Because you, you, you see what's going on. They're rejoicing They're enjoying their worship, and yet they're having constant sacrifices, which were a sign of their sin, of their inability, of their need for God's grace. You can have a seriousness and rejoicing at the the same time. They were doing it. They were doing it right here. And then you notice another difference. David is wearing a linen ephod. Now, typically, what should have been, or what would have been commonly as David would have been riding in an elevated throne carried by servants with, with his armor polished, dressed as his general, with his sword by his side, his, his giant killer, with his crown on his head, with a, a royal cape or robe. But, but David's not going to be elevated today. There's only one to be elevated. Genuine worship is not about what others think of me. It's, it's what I think of God. And so David wears this very simple, it's like a sleeveless, long T-shirt, as simple clothing as you can get. It, it's, it's, a sign, it's a clothing of the priests. And he was celebrating with, with not just the servants, with the servants' children, acting like a child, I think, in some ways. And he was dancing, and he was probably hoping that his wife, Michael, would join him in the dance. But Michael could not be there that day. Michael was busy. I mean, she was a queen. 
And queens do not have time for worship parades. Now, she had, she had some very serious business. She had, a t- she had the servant's schedule that she needed to update. And maybe her royal hair needed to be dude. Her royal manicure needed to take place. And plus, you know, Michael's gifts were not along dancing and singing. They were like gifts of discernment. And so Michael pulled up a chair to the window where she could observe the worship parade. And she practiced her gifts of discernment in radical fashion. It says in verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, not not the wife of David, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Those who have no reason to dance before God despise those who do. And David finished off the worship parade, had a great time. Nobody got killed that day. You know, the art got where it was supposed to go. Life was going good until he gets home because Michael is fuming about what she saw in the worship parade. And so as soon as David gets home, David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. See, Michael was a a daughter of Saul. She was a princess. She grew up in the palace. She knew proper palace protocol, and she was going to school David. She knew that that if you were royalty or if you wanted to be royalty, the number one thing on your agenda was, was image management. You could not act in such a way where somebody was, was more important than you, even if that somebody was God. And so she starts to rip into David. But David calls her on a stops her. Verse 21, David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father, and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make Mary before the Lord. He says, Michael, 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 hang on. Before you start trying to institute those guidelines, you need to know those guidelines were from a different dynasty, a rejected dynasty. God chose me in spite of me. How could I not dance before him? The lesson of Michael is that worship without participation is deceptive. I don't know if I'm saying this right, but here's my thought with this. When you go to observe and not participate, and your gifts of discernment are working over time, you know, and, and there's, there's some, some advice for the worship leaders and for whoever chose this song and for the, the singers and for the musicians and for the preacher and for the guys who did the video and the ushers. And, and there's, just, there's just some criticism all the way around. You're not participating, but you are critiquing. What happens is you leave thinking that you, you, were, you did a great thing. That you're the truth police, self-appointed, of course, and that, that, that you were, were, were worshiping God. But you were not. You were worshiping God in the order of Michael. There are Michaels here today. There are always Michaels when God's people get together to worship. 
And, and you need to know, look at what David says. He says, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Michael, you ain't seen nothing yet. I am going to be more, more humiliated in your eyes. You're going to think worse of me and worse of me, but the people who truly worship, they know. They know. Are you a worshiper after the order of Michael or after the order of Uzzah? Because here's the deal. If that is our worship, then, then we, will not be, we will not have the relationship with God that we need to make it through this day that we're in. Jesus, 1,000 years later, Jesus is going to say the same sort of thing. He's going to say the Father is seeking worshipers, those who will worship him in, in truth. That's the obedience. It's the mind. And in spirit, that's with the devotion, the heart. And anything shy of that does not qualify in God's mind as legitimate worship. So D.L. Moody, you see, uh, became the president of Moody Bible Institute. But at one point he says this, his most famous quote, I think. He says, the world has yet to see what God can do through a man totally committed to him. By God's grace, I will be that man. And so Moody started a school to teach people the Bible. Today, that school has sent more missionaries across the world than any other single school in the history of the world. Chicago was greatly impacted by Moody's commitment to Christ. And I wonder if we could just rewrote Moody's words a little bit for us. And we said, the world has yet to see what God can do through a church totally committed to him. Can you imagine what God might do with a church where myself, us, we worship in, in truth. We worship with obedience. We worship with a devoted heart continuously. What he might do, the world has yet to see a church like that. By God's grace, we will be that church. That's a, that's a decision each one of us makes to God's glory. Would you pray with me? Because, Father, we're grateful that you give us instruction on what it means to worship you. It's not rocket science. It's not b beyond us. You just call for a pure devotion then we get so caught up with the trappings. I can get so caught up with the trappings. I can practice my gifts of discernment like Michael. Would you help us to be wise? Would you help us to live worship according to your word? And God, it is now we, we remember that, that gift that you made, that we might be true worshipers, where the veil was torn, where we can actually enter into your presence, full orb. Would you remind us of that now as we remember your supper in Jesus' name? Amen.